because it's for the first time across much of the world that a surge in inflation has coexisted with widespread financial vulnerabilities. And the longer the inflation persists, the stronger and longer the required policy tightening needed, but then the bigger the financial stability risks. In other words, they're walking a tightrope. The central banks have got really little room to manoeuvre. Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. Our podcast aims to understand, explain and prepare us all for the fight for socialism. It's produced by members and party activists. Don't miss an episode. Hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome. I'm Lenny Shale a member of the Socialist Party, and this episode looks at the situation facing the world economy. Uh, but don't worry, this isn't going to be a, a shower of figures and numbers and algorithms and so on, but an explanation of the situation from a Marxist perspective, why it's like this, and what are the alternatives that socialists are putting forward. Today, I'm going to be speaking to Hannah Sell, who's the General Secretary of the Socialist Party. Hello, Hannah. Hi. And we'll, we're going to go through a whole number of different areas of what's taking place in the world economy and what's facing uh, the working class internationally. So, I mean, first of all, Hannah, uh, why should socialists bother discussing the world economy, uh, capitalism and what's going on with it? It's a good question. I'm definitely not going to have any algorithms in this <laughs> and we'll try and avoid too many statistics. But economics is famously called the dismal science. And there's no doubt most working class people think, oh, I don't want to read the financial pages of the newspapers. What's the point of doing that? The reality is the capitalist elites make economics as dismal, as boring as possible. But that's because they don't want us to understand how their system works or really doesn't work. Because we would draw conclusions about the need to overthrow it. And of course, it's not boring and we all think about how the economy works all the time because it's, it's our lives. If you look at the Great Recession back in 2008, for example, average wages in Britain are now £11,000 a year less than they would have been if they continued on the pre-2008 trend. That is a very real effect on all of our lives. Last year, we saw the surge in inflation that meant the biggest fall in real wages since the 1950s. And even though they're trying to say inflation's coming down a bit and so on, in reality, our wages in real terms are still falling. So the economy matters. It matters to all of us. But what we're discussing today and what we analyse in the Socialist Party, the tools we're using are not the dismal science of capitalist economics. We are Marxists. We're political economists. And what that means is we don't have a kind of a mechanical approach that the class struggle, politics, events in general are simply determined by economics. On the contrary, there's a constant interaction between the superstructure, so politics, the state, the media, culture, class struggle and the economic base of society. Look what trust did to the markets last year. It's pretty clear to all of us in Britain. <laughs> yeah. There's a link between uh, what happens in politics that can then have an effect uh, on the economy. Nonetheless, the economic foundation of society and the growing inability of capitalism to develop the productive forces 
is ultimately decisive in setting the parameters of political developments and therefore it's vital that we study it. To give you a really obvious example, since 2008, the Great Recession, there has been a huge increase in the anger at capitalism. So two-thirds of young people in Britain now describe themselves as socialists. That's a reflection of the economic crisis. Jeremy Corbyn actually once said that his leadership of the Labour Party was as a result of the Great Recession. And he was yeah. right. You know, So uh, there is a link and it is important that we study it. Brilliant. Um, I think hopefully that explains to everyone why we're discussing these situations uh, around the world. So you, you touched on a number of points there, Hannah. And I think if you look at the news, well, particularly in the recent uh, period, but really particularly since the pandemic and uh, the last few months, there's lots of talk about a new crisis, potential crisis developing. I mean, are we heading for a new global financial crisis like that, say, like 2008? I, I mean, no question. That's on the agenda. If you look back, then in March of this year, we saw the second, third and then the fourth biggest bank collapses in US history. We also had the collapse of the huge Swiss banking behemoth Credit Suisse. No more banks have failed since then. And so the kind of narrative, if you read the Financial Times and so on, is the danger's past. Maybe things are going to be okay. But we definitely cannot draw that conclusion. And actually, if you look back at the 2008 crisis, it developed over quite a long period of time. It was in April 2007 that the first major US subprime mortgage company went bankrupt. In December of that year, the US stock markets were at an all-time high. And the Financial Times were saying, it's great, it's all going to be okay. And it wasn't until September 2008 that Lehman Brothers uh, imploded, which is now remembered as the shock event that triggered the Great Recession. So we definitely can't draw the conclusion that just because it's been quiet for a few months, yeah, yeah. we're not heading to a new financial crisis. I think there are other things we should look at as well. Previously, we were told that post-2008, the finance system was much safer as a result of the safeguards that have been put in place. And it's nonsense. And that's been shown to be the case. The stress tests demanded by the Basel Regulatory Framework for Banking, which is the kind of global framework, were ripped to shreds by what took place this year because they didn't even account for the possibility of higher interest rates. They only required banks to be able to cope with a maximum losses of 10% a day, whereas during the SVB collapse, they lost almost a quarter of the bank's assets in just a few hours. First Republic lost 90% of its uninsured deposits. So, you know, dramatic uh, losses taking place. And of course, it's not only the banks that are at risk. The Liz Trust fiasco, which I've also already referred to, it was Britain's pension funds that were in danger. Um, US insurance companies are on the danger list, holding about 2.25 trillion of assets that are deemed to be risky, double the level they held back in 2008. There are loads of different possibilities for a new financial crisis in the global economy. Just in the last few days that the Financial Stability Board has, which is kind of financial stability watchdog worldwide, are saying that it's desperately needed to take action to deal with the scale of debt held by the non-banking sector, hedge funds and the yeah. rest of it, clearly worried about new crises. 
None of that means that we're going to see an exact replica of the Great Recession and what took place then. But actually, what we're likely to see in the next period, you can't give exact timescales, are crises that will be even more devastating for capitalism, both economically, but also in their political consequences. Because none of the factors that led to the 2007-2008 Great Recession have been overcome. The solutions that were adopted at the time to kind of ameliorate the depth of that crisis will not be possible in the same way next time. And kind of there's a more fundamental issue. The period of what now gets called the Great Moderation prior to 2007-2008, which was a time when, at least in the advanced capitalist countries, capitalism seemed to be working marvellously and they all thought it was great. That has now reached its limits Probably historians will look back and say it reached its limits in 2007, 2008, but it's becoming clearer now. They've got less room to manoeuvre and that means they're going to be much less able to manage future crises than they were back uh, last time around. Well, okay, brilliant. That's uh, really gone over where there's clearly lots, and this is the thing that I think a lot of economists are talking about, these pockets of crisis that are developing. You touched on the hedge funds there. I mean, in the US, there's the issue of hedge funds now, shorting US futures of treasury futures yeah. market, US <laughs> treasuries. The mind boggles about these different bets. I think in Britain they get they're, they're reintroducing blind betting on UK guilt. It's literally everything out it's of two thousand eight. Yeah. I think it was summed up by a, a podcast I listened to at the time of SVB where one of the commentators made the point that all these regulations they brought in two thousand eight meant is they just gave them license to think, oh we can gamble more. Uh, which of course we've mm-hmm. seen the the outcome of now you touched on there, Hannah, about the Great Moderation. And in Britain, that period was dominated by New Labour uh, in office after Blair's government, Blair and Brown, were elected in, in 1997. So obviously we're going to be heading towards another general election this year. Um, and there's some talk in a lot of the sort of bourgeois press about this new New Labour government, that they could achieve something quite similar to that New Labour government. I mean... What's your point of view on that? (laughs) I mean, I don't think many people think Uh, it's likely, to be honest. Um, And no, look, there is no possibility whatsoever. Like New Labour Mark 1, a Starmer-led government is going to act in the interests of the capitalist class. And actually, most of the capitalist class in Britain would prefer a Starmer-led government than the shower that having their conference, the Tory party, uh, at the moment. But it's in a totally different situation, which I think we've already kind of indicated, (laughs) really. In 1997, the UK economy grew by 4.9%, and that was its fifth consecutive year of quite healthy, by today's standards, growth. National debt was something like 40% of GDP. So famously, the new Labour Chancellor, later the Prime Minister, uh, Gordon Brown, said that Labour had abolished boom and bust. I mean, you know, pretty stupid. (laughs) It was ludicrous. But there was a reason they could say things like that and get away with it back then, because it was this period that really went from the early 1990s up to the Great Recession, when after overcoming the 87 financial crisis, which we definitely don't have time to go into, it did superficially appear like capitalism was no longer so volatile, like there weren't the same big sort of cycles of boom and bust. They appear to have been minimised. We were never taken in. If you go back and read, the Socialist Party and the Committee for Workers International wrote extensive material throughout that period 
analysing what had caused this great moderation, but also why it was preparing a new phase of capitalist crisis. This was what we called the era of financialization, when the dominant sections of the capitalist class of the major economies increasingly focused on getting their profits from buying and selling existing assets on the financial markets rather than investing in the production of goods and services, which historically is what the capitalist classes concentrated on. There were huge amounts of liquidity sloshing around, what's now called cheap money. And that was invested in increasingly high-risk financial instruments. And meanwhile, the working class and sections of the middle class became more and more reliant on debt to finance their lives, remortgaging, credit card debt, all the rest of it. So there were these huge financial bubbles far removed from the underlying value of the real economy. And it was the deflating or partial deflating of those bubbles, which was the immediate cause of the Great Recession. It seized up the world's financial system. But there was a whole period where people thought this was a new form of capitalism, where it would just continue forever uh, and be marvellous, which was absolutely shown uh, not to be the case. So why didn't um, that whole period result in sort of an inflationary sort of period? Yeah, it's a really good question, because in a way, if it had just been fictitious money floating about the world it would have led to inflation. There had to be something underlying that allowed them to get away with this for a whole period of time. Um, and that what the word, there were deeper processes in, at work, which this is related to this being political economy, because this was a brief period of history, historically speaking anyway, it didn't feel brief when you were living through it, after the collapse of the Stalinist regimes in Russia and Eastern Europe. Those brutal dictatorships bore no resemblance to genuine socialism, but they were based on a form of planned economy and they acted as a counterweight to US imperialism. And after their implosion, US imperialism really was, for a short period of time, the one unipolar superpower, a kind of hyperpower that dominated uh, the globe. So you're saying at this stage, you had the collapse of Stalinism, like you commented, it's affected both the consciousness of the working class but also probably the the, the confidence of the, the, the ruling yeah. class and capitalist class in, in the US and around the world. So we have the US now is the sort of dominant uh, force uh, within the sort of world economy, within uh, the capitalist world. So how did that really affect the working class globally? It had huge effects. I mean, they really were. Western capitalism in general, US imperialism in particular, incredibly overconfident. I think it was the Wall Street Journal that had a front page headline that was literally, we've won. And that's what they thought. They thought they could do whatever they liked. And they stepped up an offensive against the world's working class. They'd started with neoliberal policies in the previous period, but it really accelerated. And the combination of the weakening of workers' consciousness the idea capitalism was the only system and they had to accept it was dominant in that period. Working class organisation got pushed back. And then you had over a billion extra workers entering the world capitalist economy. And they were used as a lever to drive down wages around the world. So Chinese factories began to act as assembly plants for Western capitalist country, uh, companies. And their workers were paid a tiny proportion of the wages of workers in the US or Europe. I'm not going to give loads of statistics, 
But when China entered the WTO, then the average wage of a Chinese car worker was 59 US cents an hour. So that was less than 3% of a US car worker's wage. So that's what took place globally. The capitalist class in the West restored their profits by driving down wages using uh, this particular period of time when they were dominant, when the working class was pushed back and China was acting uh, as an assembly uh, plant uh, for the world. And this kind of... The US and China were locked together throughout this whole uh, period because then at the same time, uh, the Chinese state recycled parts of its trade surplus, used its foreign exchange reserves to buy US government bonds, i.e. debt, on a vast scale to help keep the US economy going in order to allow US workers to buy Chinese exports. So it was a kind of cycle. They were locked uh, together. This was a period when the profits of Western capitalism were huge, but investment levels in production did not go back up. Generally, since the end of the post-war upswing in the early 1970s, the capitalists had found it increasingly difficult to find profitable fields for investment in production. Despite the growth of new products in, in many sectors, there was and remains now overcapacity in relation to money back demand. What we mean by that is, of course, there were people who needed stuff, to put it basically, billions of people without basic necessities, but there weren't people who had the money to buy the goods that were being produced or were capable of being produced by existing industry. So there was an over-accumulation of capital that led to lower levels of capital investment notwithstanding the fact that this was the period when IT was growing. So there was huge investment in new technology, but still, overall, investment in the productive forces was at a lower level than had been the case in the post-war upswing. And if you think about it, what's the historical justification for capitalism? It's that it developed the productive forces. It developed science, technique, industry, and yet... The annual growth of fixed capital stock, and that takes into account the replacing of obsolete or worn out capital. In the US, that fell from 4% in the 1960s to 3% in the 1990s and only 2% between 2000 and 2004. And by the way, it's remained lower in the recent period. According to the World Bank, it was less than 2% from 2009 to 2018. So they were making huge profits, but they weren't investing them in production. Instead, they were relying on cheap labour in China and other countries. And instead, those profits were gambled on the financial markets. And of course, all of that worked for a period of time, but it also exacerbated the underlying problems of capitalism. Because if you drive down workers' wages globally, actually you're cutting your own market There is less ability for workers to buy cars, washing machines, new iPhones, whatever, because their wages have been lowered. And you can temporarily overcome that with debt, credit cards and so on. But there clearly uh, is a a limit to that. So so obviously, like you say, it reaches a stage where it reaches that that limit. So what happened after the crisis hit? How did the capitalist class deal with that rather than, say, capitalism just end? Yeah, unfortunately, it's never going to end until we overthrow it. And they always try and find a way out of the crisis. And it took them a while, actually, because they they thought they could get away without acting. 
But eventually they realised they had no choice because of the scale of the crisis. We have uh, no uh, nothing politically in common with any new Labour politician. But it's worth going back and listening to Alistair Darling, the Chancellor at the time, describing how they were within 24 hours of nobody being able to get money out of the banks from the cash machines in Britain at that point in time. They were panicking. They had to act. And they did under the leadership of the US. Globally, the capitalist powers cooperated in order to minimise the political and economic consequences of the Great Recession. And effectively, they did that by reinflating the bubbles, by keeping the party going on the finance markets, by pumping in again huge sums of money. Quantitative easing took place on a gigantic scale and effectively that's creating money by central banks buying up financial uh, assets. So the US Fed, the US central bank quintupled, if that's the way to pronounce it, their balance sheets of debts in that period, uh, 4.5 trillion between 2008 and 2015. Really, the US acted as the world's bank of last resort. That enabled the Chinese economy to continue growing and limited the depth of the recession globally. Clearly, I mean, the working class still hasn't recovered, as I said at the beginning. And I mean, and also, I mean, the capitalist class is still reliant upon quantitative easing. And one of, yeah. the, one of the other pockets of crisis is could quantitative tightening, yeah, reversal cause another crisis. But sorry, yeah, no, on. no, you're, uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But the bubbles now in the world's finance markets are bigger than ever. So now, the approximate value of all global assets relative to GDP, so in other words, relative to actual production have gone from about 470% of GDP in 2000 to more than 600% today. Real estate and equity markets have grown faster than the real economy by $160 trillion. Never before has the gap between the real economy and the financial bubbles been so big. It's greater now than it was in the period before uh, the Great Recession. Low interest rates, easy borrowing conditions... That created profits for the shareholders. It allowed the continuation of what's called the zombie companies. So at the start of the recent round of crisis, if you go back to the time of the pandemic, in both the US and Britain, around 20% of companies were zombie companies. What that meant is they could only afford to pay the interest on their debts with interest rates the way they were back then, which is very different to how they are uh, today. Personal debt grew again, clearly private debt had grown. Then you had the pandemic and state debts grew dramatically because in order to prevent total crisis, states stepped in uh, on a huge scale with stimulus packages. So the result was by 2022, the combined debt of corporations, states and individuals were equal to more than three and a half times global GDP. So so what you're saying is almost... Not only is there zombie companies, there's almost zombie sovereign yeah. states, nations, and yeah. are, in effect just paying the interest on their debts. Absolutely. And that's what's facing an incoming Labour government. So that is why yeah. a, a Labour government acting in the interest of the capitalist class is going to be facing a very different situation to what was faced back in 1997. Okay. I mean, yeah. th- think of all the councils <laughs> that are about yeah, to yeah. go bankrupt. Zombie or, councils. Exactly, yeah. yeah. 
uh, the list goes on. So um, they could well come to power a Starmer-led government um, at a time of a new world recession, given everything I've just described. That could easily be the case. But even if that's not exactly the timing, that's going to be on the agenda. And certainly they're going to face a stagnant economy, huge level of indebtedness, not least government debt. Politically, the huge accumulated anger of the majority who've grown up in the period since the Great Recession, who've suffered lower wages uh, and so on and so forth. And in addition for British capitalism, no longer being part of the bloc of the EU and in general being a declining power means it's particularly actually vulnerable to the world markets yeah. more than other advanced uh, capitalist economies. Okay, so you, I think you paint a perfect picture there, the situation, uh, Hannah. I mean, and just, just to add, even in, in the US, one of the most developed nations compared to, say, some of these zombie nations, not say zombie nations, zombie debts of some nations. Mm-hmm. In the US, I think it's over $30 trillion of debt on the federal debt, actually the government debt, 17 trillion household debt, 3 trillion local government debt, and need 20 trillion corporate debt. Yeah. That just yeah. another painting a picture. And so you've explained all that, and then there's another issue. This is, we've, we've got all this and inflation on top. Yeah, exactly. Um, the capitalists always have the tendency to think uh, that they've solved a problem forever and not be ready for the next problem when it comes along. Uh, it's the nature of their system. It's a blind system. And yeah, now they've got inflation. So the era of cheap money is definitively over. Obviously, individual countries had suffered bouts of inflation prior to the recent period, but it is now widespread across the advanced capitalist uh, countries. Um, and in response to that, they've had no choice but to put interest rates up as their means to try and deal uh, with uh, inflation. And as you mentioned earlier, to move from quantitative easing to attempting to reverse that through what's called quantitative tightening. And clearly, we all know that's putting a huge strain on all of us, on anybody who's having to remortgage or, you know, to uh, their fixed rate mortgage has come to an end. Anybody who's got a credit card on all of us because it means our wages are going down in real terms. But it's also putting a huge strain on the world financial system. The Bank of International Settlement said in 2023, in their 2023 report, rather, that this is a unique period by post-World War II standards because it's for the first time across much of the world that a surge in inflation has coexisted with widespread financial vulnerabilities. And the longer the inflation persists, the stronger and longer the required policy tightening needed, but then the bigger the financial stability risks. In other words, they're walking a tightrope. The central banks have got really little room to manoeuvre. The destabilising consequences of the surge in inflation means they're compelled to try and drive it down by raising interest rates. And yet the bank runs they saw earlier this year show how that can go wrong so easily. And when SVB collapsed, fundamentally, that was uh, about the fact uh, that was was linked to the question of interest rates. I won't go into it because this is going on too long. Uh, It led to a fall in the value of uh, the government bonds they held uh, But when that happened, the Fed had no choice but to step in. They also had to pause quantitative tightening. And And go on. They're still stepping in. They're still still propping up a lot of these local banks in the US. Absolutely. And a wider financial crisis can mean they have to intervene on a bigger scale. 
uh, and totally stop quantitative tightening, despite the consequences, because they've got no good options. They can't just let crises happen without acting, not least because of the explosive political consequences, but there will also be explosive political consequences by intervening. You could see they were terrified during the SVB and the other bank collapses because of the anger of working class people. You're stepping in, bailing out the banks again. You're bailing out Wall Street, but not Main Street, not working class people. So they're terrified of that, but they can still be compelled to do it because of the scale of the crisis. So why is it that inflation is happening now? I mean, there's multiple factors. It's never a simple question. And actually, I suppose... The fundamental issue, which I'll come on to, is more how come they didn't have inflation for so long? Yeah. It's not normal for capitalism to get away with pumping that amount of liquidity into economy and not get inflation. But there were multiple reasons why it developed at the time and in the way that it did, that the peculiar period, if you like, came to an end. One was the consequence of the pandemic stimulus packages. So if you take the US, uh, which is obviously the most powerful economy we're talking about, in 2020, the Fed pumped more than $3 trillion into the economy. One fifth of all the dollars that in existence, physically and electronically, were created that year. It was a gigantic stimulus package. Well, one fifth of all dollars. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, and it was much bigger than anything that had taken place before, but it was also different to QE because QE mostly went to the rich. It was buying up financial assets. The Bank of England, for example, estimated in 2012 that QE up until then had gone to the top 5% of the population in Britain. And it was a similar picture in the US. The pandemic stimulus packages were a different thing. Obviously, there were huge emergency measures that pump money into the pharmaceutical companies, that handed out vast sums to Matt Hancock's mates in Britain and other equivalents around the world. But at the same time, the UK furlough scheme, for example, and this was actually even more true in the US, but the furlough scheme, to give an example, paid 80% of the wages of over 10 million workers who were not working. Now, while that was a 20% wage cut for many of them who couldn't get it off their companies, nonetheless, that was workers being paid when they weren't producing goods, um, being given money while they were sitting at home. And with society shut down and no possibility of spending, not all workers at all, but sections of better off workers and the middle class did accumulate savings in that period. Unlike the top 5%, when workers in the middle class get savings and then an economy reopens, we're much more likely to go and spend it. Yeah. We need stuff. And that's, what's that's, that's partly what happened. There was a short-term surge in inflation uh, because economies reopened. People wanted to go and buy stuff. They had a bit more money to be able to do it at a time when supply chains were very disrupted as a result of the pandemic and the shutdowns in production that had taken place. Then you got the Ukraine war, uh, which obviously, in addition to the huge human suffering it has resulted in, massively exacerbated international supply chain problems. And then, of course, and this is always the case, once you get inflation, the capitalist class take advantage of the situation to maximise their profits with price gouging and all the rest of it. Even the IMF. 
the head of their research department, looking at uh, this year, dryly commented that corporate profits have surged and that this is the flip side of higher prices, but only modestly higher wages. And clearly he commented that the capitalists should be able to absorb rising labour costs because they've made massive profits. They've whacked up prices as far as they can get away with in order to maximise their profits. So all that stuff explained, if you like, the short-term surge in inflation, but they don't fully explain why it's persisted. And that's obviously been to the surprise of most central bankers. You know, they were all debating it, but they were basically saying, oh, we think this isn't going to last very long. It's only temporary and so on and so forth. The underlying reasons are the nature of the capitalist system and its increasingly chaotic multipolar character that we've come to the end of the period that I described earlier of US supremacy and cheap commodity production in China. And that was what made cheap money possible. That was the era of globalisation, as it was called. That came to an end with the Great Recession and we're feeling the consequences now. Of course, even during the peak globalisation, still capitalism was based on nation states, but the US was so dominant that it was able to a certain extent to order the world in a way that suited it to mediate between the different powers and so on. Well, you've only got to look at at the Ukraine war to see that that is no longer true, that the the US are no longer able to call the shots to the same degree. And clearly, China is no longer prepared to be a producer of cheap commodities for the US and the West. And it's that breakdown in world relations which under, is underlies the reason that we've got inflation now. Okay. I mean, we can already see it a little bit. I'm not to go into it, but uh, over the weekend, the US government avoided a shutdown. Just, and just yeah. about... Let me, even, I, I had to text a few people because I've been betting that they were, they were mm-hmm. going to shut down. I think I, I blame uh, reading a lot of the sort of commentators... Um, but one of the key issues there was about funding, giving extra funding to the Ukraine. Yeah. And that's, I mean, they kicked the can down the road, but they still haven't decided uh, upon that. Um, so you can see, I think we can see, and of course the rest of the world can see, this relative weakening of the US um, as an imperialist mm-hmm. and capitalist power. But how does that affect the world economy? Yeah, I mean, it is, it, it's weaker, but it's still the strongest power uh, in the world. And what I described before, the kind of locking together of the US and China, that's still there. It's actually still the central axis in the world economy. So last year, the US trade deficit with China reached a record $309 billion. And at the same time, China still holds over a trillion of the total of $28 trillion of US government debt. So, you know, there's still yeah. that locking together, but we can all see that they're increasingly in conflict. It's not, you know, that's, I think, obvious to everybody. And at root, it's because the China is no longer content to act as an assembly plant for the West, but as an increasingly powerful rival. And US capitalism, as the dominant but declining power, is desperate to prevent China climbing up the value chain, in other words, moving to advanced manufacturing. Back in 2001, when China joined the World Trade Organization, its economy at market exchange rates was barely a tenth the size of America's. 
At the start of 2008, it was only a fifth of the size. Now it's almost half. So that's a big change that has taken place. China is unique in the world, really. We, we should have a separate podcast yeah, on China. I'm not going to talk about it's, that. It's, it's being <laughs> yeah. planned. Yeah, good. Um, but the state plays an exceptionally large role because of its history. Um, and it enabled it to provide an infrastructure and workforce to be a much more advanced from the beginning and qualitatively larger assembly plant for the West than any other country could have provided. No uh, normal uh, neo-colonial country could have provided the roads, the motorways, the railways, the factories that China has provided in order to act as this huge assembly plant, uh, the trained workers as well. But that's also given it the ability to develop further. You know, Xi's 2015 Made in China 2025 policy, that is a determined effort by the Chinese state to develop the strategic sectors of the economy in order to be able to compete against the US. And that's next generation IT, agricultural machinery, it's everything. And they've made progress. They're now the world's biggest car exporter. They lead the world in electric vehicle manufacturing. And they're no longer the cheap assembly plant that they once were. So today, a, a Chinese car worker only earns three and a half times less than, if that makes sense, than a US worker, a car worker earns, rather than the hundreds of times less than was the case 20 years ago. They're clawing their way up, but China's also in crisis. Um, And actually, their domestic market is still limited. Um, And the Trump-era tariffs, which are still in place, Biden got rid of none of them, that has affected them. And you've now also got all the policies that Biden has introduced the Inflation Reduction Act, it's called, which is really about, along with the Chips and Science Act, about limiting the export of high-tech microchips in particular to China and squeezing the Chinese economy. And China still has a limited domestic market and still cannot manufacture the most advanced microchips. They're fighting to be able to do it, but they're not yet able to. And that means that this squeeze on China, this attempt to stop it climbing up the value chain, is having a real effect. And the underlying contradictions of China, which are many and were always there, are becoming much more apparent in the crises that are now developing in China. But at the same time, of course, China's retaliating. It can't do otherwise. So it's enforcing export restrictions on critical minerals, which are desperately needed for semiconductor production. Uh, And that's producing a scramble across the Western powers to find alternative sources, because more than 95% of rare earth materials and metals come from or are processed uh, in China. So you can see that we're in an increasingly multipolar world, growing conflict between the major powers, And that is having a destabilising effect on the world economy, most brutally shown by the invasion of Ukraine. And Putin would not have dared to do that if he didn't think he could lean on China's strength. That has made the difference that has enabled that. But at the same time, there's also increasing protectionist measures uh, in the other training. You know, this is not only about the US and China. So we're going to see more sort of tensions, disputes, whether it's economic, even military conflicts and others across the world, if you like. Absolutely. And everybody has to retaliate. 
so in response to the IRA Act in the US, it's not only China that has to retaliate. The EU has to start coming up with their own. Japan has to discuss it. So absolutely, you're getting this uh, increasingly multi-polar uh, world. And, and Britain's left alone trying yeah. to work, work out his own situation. His own poxy little yeah, version, yeah. yeah. Um, so you, you talk about, there's, we, there's almost a record levels of uh, protectionist policies uh, now across the world. Uh, that's right, absolutely. And if you look at the number of uh, policies that are looking towards more cooperation, opening things up, they are dwarfed by the massive number of protectionist policies that are being uh, introduced That doesn't mean, though, faced with a new financial crisis or another major crisis, you wouldn't see cooperation. Actually, you saw it with Credit Suisse, didn't you? They they did work together. Uh, But cooperation on the scale that took place in 2008, and particularly with China playing the role it played in 2008, that is not posed again. So they can try and cooperate, particularly between the Western powers, but they're not going to be able to cooperate to the same degree because they're being driven, their conflicting interests are driving them to increasingly compete against each other, even though they can all see that that will make future crises worse. Okay, so we've gone over what the, the sort of the, the, the multipolar world aspect of the situation, the conflict arising between China and the US. I mean, some of the talk is there's, um, there's been huge surges into green state investment. Does that offer a way forward for capitalism? I mean, it's clear, isn't it, that there is big state investment. In the US in particular, uh, the promises that Biden has made are substantial. If it was all fully implemented, you could say it would be on a scale similar to the martial aid that was provided by US imperialism to Europe and Japan after the Second World War. Um, But it's not comparable in other senses, And it's not going to lead to the kind of prolonged upswing which took place between 1950 and 1973. Again, you should have a separate podcast on that. (laughs) There's a lot of things we're touching on here. Uh, Robin Clapp is writing a a, a Marxist study guide on that, so you should get him to do a podcast on that. Um, But the post-war upswing developed in a period where US imperialism completely dominated the capitalist world. Obviously, there was also the Stalinist world at that point in time. They had, in 1945, two-thirds of the world's gold in Fort Knox, and they were able to establish a framework for the capitalist world under US domination. And that included the IMF, the World Bank, plus the 1944 Bretton Woods Agreement, which tied 44 capitalist currencies to the US dollar, which had gold behind it. At the same time, the other world, if you like, the Stalinist world, emerged strengthened from the Second World War. They took a big chunk of Eastern Europe. You had the victory of the Chinese Revolution in 1949. So that was a very different background to the world that we're having had today. And if you look at why US capitalism used its dominance to carry out martial aid, to provide major financial assistance through loans, but also through favourable trade terms and so on, to war-ravaged Europe and Japan... The main reason was fear of revolution. They feared the spread of revolution, were terrified and therefore thought we've got to prop up capitalism in our rivals, effectively, in order to make sure they stay capitalist. That's what was taking place at that point in time. And those factors 
combined with the huge destruction of capital that had taken place in the Second World War, that created the unique factors that led to the post-war upswing, which was a period of big, unprecedented growth in the world's capitalist economy. I mean, how different could it be to yeah. today? <laughs> because, of course... US imperialism has retreated into this uh, small yard, high fence protectionist strategy. They're putting up the walls. What could be more obvious than you cannot halt climate change in one country? You've got to cooperate globally in order to achieve it. And yet for 21st century capitalism, it's driving protectionism. It's the main reason that's given for Biden and then for other countries' protectionist uh, measures. It's true that US capitalism have promised uh, green subsidies globally, um, but so far they've only actually agreed to pay over $1 billion to the UN Green Climate Fund, far short of the $11 billion a year that Biden promised. Uh, instead, what they're doing is a protectionist measure to help US industry. How far that's actually implemented is a very open question because, after all, who's going to win the US presidential election? Do you yeah. think Trump is going to continue yeah. uh, with these measures uh, if he was to be or any Republican candidate backed by a kind of oil section of the capitalist class? Then they will attempt to cut across it. But in any case, the green transition is not about the capitalist class finding marvellous additional fields of profitable investment. It's about sections of them where they think they can make a profit out of it, moving to green investment, but others losing out. So in addition to the increased global competition, there is also growing conflict between those sections of the capitalist class who think they can make a profit out of green investment and those who want to continue to rely on the oil uh, industry and so on. And they will only invest as far as they can make a profit. So... Uh, if you look, the most, the latest Goldman Sachs report estimates that even with all of the currently pledged, pledged government subsidies around the world, still they only expect 0.9 trillion of the 2.8 trillion dollars a year of green capex, green investment in capital expenditure that is needed, they say, for a green transition to be carried out because there's not enough profit in it. They're not going to go further and do everything that is needed. Meanwhile, it's estimated, according to Mark Carney, who used to be governor of the Bank of England, that the capitalist classes, different capitalist companies, have something like $20 trillion of uh, stranded assets, unusable fossil fuel reserves that they will lose if the measures that have been agreed so far for a green transition are carried out. Okay. So you can see the conflict yeah, yeah, yeah. there uh, taking place. But of course, an element of this is US capitalism trying to gain at the expense of other weaker powers. And to some degree, they, they can succeed in doing that. So it's not them uh, helping the rest of the world, but trying to put the rest of the world on rations. And again, yeah. weaker economies like Britain undoubtedly will uh, lose out uh, for, uh, on that. But it, even for American workers, the idea this is going to lead to well-paid jobs, to a marvellous new future, that's not what's on the agenda. US um, workers are going to have to fight for it. Well, and I mean, you're seeing an element of that now. Uh, yeah. Part of the UAW strike Absolutely. In, in Detroit is not only the wage and conditions they're facing, is but the 
the move to move more and more electric car factories to the south where they can pay workers yeah, less, exactly. exploit them, unions are less of a profile. And of course, part of the fear of the US working ruling class is how southern workers who are now working in some of these early factories could be inspired by what's taking place by the UAW. Absolutely. So we're see more of that. Yeah, we? yeah. No, and they're really worried. The people building yeah. the new uh, semiconductor factories that, that, that they're going to go on Even strike. the workers who are building yeah, them, apparently, yeah. there's been issues there. Absolutely, yeah. And the, but on that, on the CHIPS Act, uh, that's an attempt to move advanced semiconductor production to the US. But there's not many workers in advanced semiconductor factories. It, it, even the uh, Semiconductor Industry Association, uh, they uh, estimate that it will increase, it will lead to 42,000 extra jobs. The total number of workers right now in the US semiconductor manufacturing industry is only 0.17% of the total US workforce. So the illusion yeah. that bringing these, this, this as far as it happens, which of course is an open question, but bringing this microchip production into the US will create extra jobs is absolutely not the case, only the case to a very limited extent. But of course, for the US capitalist class, the degree to which it's carried out will also mean more expensive semiconductors, which is then a further cause a cause of crisis. So overall, there is nothing in any of these measures that are going to overcome US, never mind world's capitalism's, prolonged problems of overcapacity, the shrunken share of wages in national income, uh, what that means in restricting the market for capitalism. There's lots of talk about AI at the moment. But on a capitalist basis, that's only going to further cut yeah. jobs. There is nothing there that is going to overcome any of the long-term problems of capitalism. Okay, so we've gone over a whole host of different <laughs> crises. I think it's been worth it just to, I think, to demonstrate what's taking place and the different movers and shifters taking place around the world. But I think like we said at the start, Hannah, we don't just discuss this because it's interesting or fun to, yeah. to talk about, or even that we're catastrophists and we're hoping for capitalism to doom and the working class to rise up. We, we want to discuss it and look at what's taking place so we can sort of formulate a programme, demands, and give ordinary working class people who are facing this a way forward. So what is the way forward? <laughs> OK, capitalism has no way forward. They've got no way out of this crisis. For the neo-colonial world, it's a nightmare. Uh, more Sri Lankan-style debt crises are undoubtedly on the agenda. But even in the economically developed countries... New financial crises against the background of everything we've described, heavily indebted nation states, they are going to be much more difficult for the capitalists to contain than in the past. And by the way, even if they manage to limit the immediate effects of new financial crises via state intervention, that will further fuel anger at the bailing out of banks and the financiers at the same time as everything the working class is suffering in terms of the crumbling of our public services, cuts to our wages, and so on. And that will lead to mass struggles. It's not possible for us to predict exactly when the next major economic crisis will develop, nor what the trigger for it will be. It can be financial, but it can also be new wars developing, other developments. But what we can say is capitalism is rotting worldwide. As Marx long ago said, uh, predicted would be the case, this system has reached an impasse within the framework of private ownership of the means of production and the nation state. Growth is slowing, even without future crises. 
The IMF, in their most recent report, conclude by saying, a fragmented world is unlikely to achieve progress for all or allow us to tackle global challenges such as climate change or pandemic preparedness. And they plead really with the capitalists. We must avoid that path at all costs. But we can all see that's the path that capitalism is on and that is going to mean future disasters. But capitalism will stagger on. It will not collapse. We have to overthrow it. Only democratic socialist planning under the democratic control of the working class would make it possible to move production to a higher stage, to organise it on a global basis, to satisfy social needs and halt and repair climate change, rather than at the moment as it is being driven by the greed for profit. So replacing this system with democratic socialist planning is the urgent task facing the working class worldwide. And while there's not a direct link between economic crisis and growth in support for Marxism, for socialist ideas, there is a link. There's no doubt. We've already seen out of the 2008 crisis, you saw a wave of new parties, new left leaders, as workers started looking for a left alternative, the likes of Jeremy Corbyn in Britain, Bernie yeah. Sanders in the US, Syriza and Podemos in Greece and Spain. They have in different ways failed to measure up. But that was a reflection of the first searching for an alternative. Still, the majority of workers and young people are looking to the left. And on the basis of future crises, of the growing industrial confidence of workers beginning to think we can fight back in our workplaces, as we're seeing with the UAW strike, with the strike waves that we've seen in Britain, that is preparing the ground for much broader sections of the working class drawing socialist conclusions and for us successfully overthrowing this rotten system. Brilliant. Thank you, Hannah. And hopefully, uh, for those listening, we've fueled uh, your interest uh, in Marxism, in socialist uh, ideas. And if that's, that's true, uh, there's two things uh, you, you need to do, or maybe three things. Uh, I mean, first of all, you need to get yourself down to Socialism 2023. It'll be an in-person weekend of discussion, debate on the ideas to change the world uh, hosted uh, by the Socialist Party. Uh, Hannah is going to be one of the keynote speakers at the opening rally on a Saturday uh, night. And among many of the uh, speakers, various uh, workshops, over 40, are taking place over the course uh, of the weekend which gives you a chance to pose those questions uh, raise your own uh, points and even argue if you wish you're going to be there amongst hundreds of socialist fighters so it's one definitely not to miss and it takes place on the 25th and 26th of November in London you can buy a ticket and one of the tickets you could buy includes the uh, hostel accommodation and it's a free crash throughout uh, as well for tickets and more info, go to www.socialism.org.uk. Uh, the second thing uh, you need to do is get yourself a subscription to Socialism Day, uh, the monthly magazine of the Socialist Party, and as a regular writer, and actually you can read more about some of the issues we've been discussing yep. here in the recent editions. Uh, and it uh, gives a really good insight into sort of, a whole range of uh, Marxist topics and ideas uh, and debate uh, and touching on class struggle, historical, theoretical and even more. So go to www.socialismtoday.org and the third thing you need to do, if you're not already, is to join the Socialist Party. Definitely. Thanks again, Hannah. Thanks.
Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England-Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. If you would like to get in touch about anything discussed here or to join the Socialist Party, please email info at socialistparty.org.uk. You can find further reading in the notes in your podcast app and on our websites. For the Socialist Party, that's www.socialistparty.org.uk. For those listening in other parts of the world especially, we recommend checking out the CWI with analysis of world events to join the fight for socialism in your country. That's www.socialistworld.net. Editing is done by a team of member volunteers, including producer Chris Cook, without whom this podcast is not possible. Get in touch if you have skills you would like to contribute. If you want to get in touch, email info at socialistparty.org.uk. The Socialist Party relies on funding from our members and supporters. We have no big business backers or adverts, which allows us to maintain our political independence. Can you help fund this podcast? You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Even more importantly, do you agree with the ideas of the Socialist Party as we have raised here? We want you to become a member and join the fight for a socialist world. Get in touch today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so we can see you next time.